Hi, welcome to Light the Camera Author. I'm Jim Juno, and this is the podcast where we talk with authors who write books about Hollywood, movies, uh, television, and really any anything pertaining to entertainment or what catches our eye. And I have with me tonight a very special guest. Her name is Julia Bricklin, and she has a new book coming out, or is it already out, Julia? It comes out September 5th. September 5th. A uh, new book, it's called Red Sapphire. Uh, hold it up here so people can see it. And it's, uh, it is The Woman Who Beat the Blacklist. Now, for those of you out there who aren't familiar with The Blacklist, think of cancel culture. And that's the nearest that's that's the nearest thing I can compare it to is it was a concerted effort to keep actors, screenwriters, directors, movie makers out of work because they were suspected communists. And Julia, I mean, this story this is the story of Hannah Weinstein. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. You are. Yes. Yes. Right. Hannah Weinstein. She beat the blacklist. But I'm going to let you tell her story. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted. Um, Hannah Weinstein, no relation to the um, more notor notorious um, producer of that name, was uh, a, a leader in progressive political causes in the 30s and 40s. She was really a dynamo. She led the Independent Citizens Committee for the Arts, Sciences, and Professions, which was um, really an answer to Hollywood's version of democratic and in, uh, progressive causes. She led scientists and writers and teachers and um, any number of, of leaders in the arts, sciences, and professions to encourage their uh, brethren to vote and to vote for progressive causes. And they were able to lead uh, FDR into an unprecedented fourth term. And um, towards the end of the 1940s, Weinstein was in the crosshairs of Senator Joseph McCarthy, as well as the uh, House for Un-American Activities. And uh, she appeared on a list of 400 concealed communists, people who were thought to be hidden communists. Of course, she was not, but that's almost beside the point. There were people who were uh, members of the very legal communist party who had done nothing to overthrow the government. But regardless, lists are lists. Um, Hannah was on it. She was also a single mother of three, newly divorced, and uh, could not make a living. She was fired from her public relations job, and she was fearful that any minute she would be served a subpoena, in which case she may have been forced to testify against a number of uh, friends and colleagues and um, decided she wasn't going to do it. Uh, she was able to get an invitation to come to France, where she joined friends like Boris Karloff and producer John Weber. Uh, Norma and Ben Barsman, who were producers and already living in Paris, and uh, decided she would take her three daughters and sail to Paris and see what she could do over there. It's not clear if she really had a plan. I do know that when she got there, she did not know anything about making films or TV, but uh, her colleagues taught her how to 
do such things and in a relatively short period of time. She was a very smart lady. And uh, she wound up getting the rights to a uh, a book uh, called, uh, well, she produced a movie, but she also got the rights to a book called uh, Colonel March of Scotland Yard. And she produced a TV movie, what we think of as a television movie based on that was actually meant for theaters too. She sold it into the UK where it caught the attention of a, a fledgling media mogul by the name of Sir Lou Grade. Of course, I don't I don't know that he was knighted at that time, probably not. But Lou Grade was a theater impresario. He and his brother had been purchasing um, theater chains all over the United Kingdom. And he wanted to buy a commercial TV license. These were new things in British television. British TV did not have commercial television until late 19, mid to late 1953. So what do you put on commercial television? Mm -hmm. Well, people were looking for product and they were looking for product with wide appeal. And Lou Grade saw something in Hannah's movie production of Colonel March and he bought it. And he also decided that she had a lot more to give. So he got a group of investors and convinced her to move over to Britain and start a film studio, which we call a television studio, but really it was film for a smaller uh, venue called television. So that's how she got her start. And she and she did quite well. Um, now, one thing you, I want to I want to go back to what you were saying is that she was a concealed communist, which means that. She was. They did. She wasn't a communist. People just thought she was, right. And this is this always stuns me that people were not able to prove anything. Mm -hmm. They weren't able to 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 say yes, she is, but they just thought she was. So therefore, we're not going to we're not going to let her work. Right. That right. that that always just stuns me in this day and age. Well. I'll get into that later, but we're sort okay. of seeing it again in this day and age. Communist is still a bad word. Um, I think then, as now, uh, people don't know the difference between authoritarian governments that arise under the guise of communism. But simply put, communism was and is a legal party in the United States. Mm -hmm. It is not legal to make plans to overthrow the United States government with violence, but um, it really was not, a, a t you know, of course, there were avowed communists who, who really did want to change the political and economic system of the United States. That was not Hannah Weinstein, and that was not the majority of the people that she knew and it was not the majority of the people who wanted to create a more, um, I, th I think socialist is a fair word, perhaps a, a more equitable uh, playing field of opportunity for women and minorities, um, for people who happen to be gay. Um, she really was ahead of her time, but there would have been no... Uh, you know, legal consequences for her had she decided to become a 
whatever a concealed communist was. Now, <laughs> there are and there were records of communists in the United States, kept very good records. I was not able to find any records that she was a card-carrying member of the Communist Party USA. I, I don't think a lot of people liked to be pigeonholed. I think they just wanted to do good works. And um, so if she was a concealed communist, brava. She <laughs> she really did conceal it, but I could find no record that she was. I'll talk a little bit about finding records. You you start your book out by saying it took you years yes. to get to get even through the Freedom of Information Act. Yeah. It took yes. you years to get information from the government United States government. Yes. About something that happened. Oh, my math skills coming into play here. 70, 72 some odd years ago. Years ago. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I, you know, I don't want to disparage the really hardworking archivists that work for some of these agencies. Some of them never planned to have to deal with the sheer volume of requests that they get from journalists and citizens like me. I mean, it has to be overwhelming. It really does. And especially, you know, I started this just before COVID hit. So all of a sudden, I was not only unable to get uh, certain records, but I was unable to get a hold of a warm body in an, in an office where those records were held. And that's no one's fault. What was a little bit, what was a lot um, of a headache was, okay, first of all, the FBI immediately handed over redacted copies of their files for Hannah. Now, it was also before COVID. Uh, another author had already done the legwork for me some years ago, maybe not, um, may, they may not have gotten all of her files, but they put in the request that so so they had a record of her and it was easy for them to pull it and send it to me the central intelligence agency was another matter um they sent me letter um after letter acknowledging my foia request uh then they kept missing their own self-reported deadlines for answering such a request um and over time i started to realize that it, it wasn't the fact that they weren't handing over her records. It was just they weren't being very um, truthful is not the right word. Truthful is not what I'm after, but they weren't. Um, there seemed to be a lot of cooks in the kitchen doing nothing. And again, I don't want to disparage the hard workers in these agencies because a lot of them are taking orders from above and and it's a lot of work. But um, perhaps then don't tell me that you have a deadline and, and perhaps don't keep missing them. So I got, um, it's difficult to find an attorney. I explained that in the book why, but I did find one and mm -hmm. he was great. And uh, he was ultimately able to get me records that, you know, the, that only amounted to about five or six double spaced um pieces of paper, you know, maybe three or four very tight, single spaced pieces of paper. It wasn't a lot, but it was significant. It did help me piece some things together. It did name some names and it did give me a glimpse into the minds of 
of intelligence agents who are tasked with filling files with papers about people for whom they probably didn't have any idea why they were following. That's what I was wondering is if it was anything, you know, five or six pages, you know, that doesn't seem like a whole lot of information. Right. But you said there are some things in there, like people's names and whatever. Yeah, it was very dense. Uh, there were a lot of names from the then Soviet Union of people who had um, tried to come over here under the auspices of, you know, perhaps they were singers or dancers and, um, um, you know, mathematicians and Hannah, Hannah's group you know, actively solicited those kinds of people from the Soviet Union to come over and share information with scientists and and uh, teachers and other information gatherers over here. Uh, was it naive? Um, that's something I touch upon in the book. It's something that's really well covered by people who are scholars in this field, which I am not. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I... I it really was the very beginning of intelligence gathering on the Soviet Union and vice versa. So it was very interesting. And I think people uh, may not realize that back in, um, I guess it started with her, I want to say back around 1947, if I'm mis mistaken that year. I mean, around that time of the... Of her being followed? Yes. Uh -huh. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. 1947 was a different era because, well, yes, I mean, we still don't trust in Russia nowadays, you know, sure. but, but back then it was, it was the red scare, as they used to call it. It was communists are coming over to take your, take your way of life away. And these, and these uh, entertainers or, or movie makers I guess today's term would be they're grooming uh, people for for thinking that way. Or well, I, I I don't I think that then like now it is a big fat deflection. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's supremely important. We have reason to not be friends with the Soviet Union and China. Um. Uh, at some point we'll probably get into atomic energy and the bomb and uh, the world sort of, you know, waiting on pins and needles to see who was the ultimate uh, arbiter of nuclear science. Um, so I, I, I don't know if, it, if it's fair to say that it was um, not necessary to villainize the Soviet Union. It absolutely was. And I'm being very simplistic here. Right. But what people didn't realize is that there were politicians who were also using that as an excuse to gather power for themselves in the United States. And like you said, and I'm, I don't know if and you've seen the movie Trumbo. Yes. I, there is a line that Trumbo says to uh, John Wayne at the beginning of the movie that all it says is that um, commun uh, that Congress cannot tell. Can what, what's the line? Something some similar to the line of 
Congress cannot ask who you voted for or something along those lines. Something like that. And and that's what that's what exactly what Congress was doing um, back in those days. Um, but she, uh, you know, and like you said, being a communist or a member of the Communist Party, we'll put it that way, sure. was not illegal. Right. Yet, yet, you know, people lost their livelihoods. They lost their they lost their homes in some cases. Well, what, and what we have to remember again, and you've picked up on this, that what's true then is true now. What we're seeing with the writers' strike and the actors' strike is very reminiscent of labor in the 40s and 50s. And part of the reason the blacklist existed was because people were afraid of of, um, bargaining power and the things that labor unions, not just on Hollywood, but labor unions in all areas of manufacturing and corporate America, there are certain political factions who did not want to see labor power come to rise. And it was. And so we're seeing that again and again and again. And accusing somebody of being a communist, more realistically, it would have been better to accuse them of trying to overthrow the government, which, of course, they they weren't. But, you know, well, you don't know that. They were, you know, planting images and films and television scripts, and they're, you know, they're sending subliminal images to children through their books, through books, and and so you're really where have we heard that at nowadays? <laughs> I know. The fear of organized labor is really something that is just going to keep coming up over and over again. And certain one particular political party will always be fearful of organized labor. That's just the way it is, better whether you like it or not. Exactly. But she goes over to Europe. She does well. I mean, and she, and she, I want to say spreads the wealth. She, she enabled people like um, the Hollywood 10, Ring Lardner, I believe. Sure. I mean, yeah. they were able to give her scripts and they were able to uh, get jobs. Now they yes. didn't make the same amount of money, of course, but, right. but it was, it was something to help. It was something to help. And I know that she was, and as I, I talk about this more in my book, uh, she was, you know, for somebody like me, who's not a scholar of the Cold War and communism, it's it, it was a real juxtaposition to see her uh, become so wealthy. And she liked fine things. She liked nice clothes. We know this from her assistants. We know this from her, um, you know, she was Hollywood. I mean, she mm-hmm. she liked nice things. Um, how do you reconcile that with with being um, sympathetic toward your uh, communist friends who 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 do associate with sharing the wealth? Well, okay, I think that you can really be sympathetic towards organized labor and and leveling the playing field for a wider swath of Americans. Um, and and still enjoy the fruits of your labor, so to speak. Exactly. Uh, exactly yeah. Yeah. Um, so go on. Okay. Yeah, but she and some of the some of the movies that she made, I mean, are really well known. Um, the Adventures of Robin Hood, which is not the uh, not the Errol Flynn one, but 
Right. But you know, yes. it was another and four just men. Yes. F O F O U R. Four just men, not F O R. Those those two movies, they were they were quite good, weren't they? Those programs were really good. I mean, look, the adventures of Robin Hood was only supposed to run in a a family hour before the new, which was before the news in those days. If you can imagine that, it was around you know after dinner at six thirty. Oh my goodness! If you can imagine <laughs> getting getting an audience nowadays at six thirty p.m. It it was supposed to just be good enough to be a placeholder. It was, I mean, it ran, it, they made 143 episodes. It ran over four seasons and it ran into um, syndication forever. I think in some countries it's still in syndication. Um, the Four Just Men was really a breakout hit for its time. I mean, it was filmed on, you know, it was supposed to be filmed on different continents. I mean, it was very um, international and and cause was very cosmopolitan for its time. It was very smart. Still is. Still holds up. Uh, yeah, so, those those programs really hold up. And were, they also had some connections with her, didn't they? Or was it the sort of freedom that had connections with American uh, friends of hers? They all had connections yeah. with her American friends. They all wrote scripts for them. Um, Ring Lardner Jr. and um, Ian McClellan Hunter really um, carried the first season of Robin Hood, but um, they were exhausted. They were exhausted. I mean, they were working so much for that show. I mean, they they needed to take a break. They uh, brought in other blacklisted writers as the show was picked up for a second and then a third and then a fourth season. And then she needed script writers for Sir Lancelot. And then she needed uh, the four just men had more of an international draw. I'm not, I, um, without my notes in front of me, I don't recall how many, uh, I think maybe only one or two blacklisted writers participated in that one. Um, the um, Robert Shaw, you know, the Buccaneers. Yes. Oh, that really too. It was so fun. And it, it also put a lot of groceries on the table for a lot of people. And as you mentioned in your book, I mean, this is not the time. I mean, well, this is, of course, before the internet. This is before um, what, um, before it's not, well, what I'm trying to say is that it was not easy sending stuff from California. Oh, no to, to Europe no. especially no if you're facts. under the watch yeah oh goodness no um New York and California really a lot of them were based in New York um no fax machine telegrams were too expensive um except for the basic hurried needs and quick turnarounds it was typed letters typed letters both sides of the paper back and forth in bulk across the continent, across the Atlantic and everything. Um, they, they had ways of sending scripts that didn't necessarily have to go each and every one. Once they reached a, a point in time where everybody was comfortable with each other, they didn't have to send the scripts through a 
I don't want to give everything away here to the reader. <laughs> Suffice it to say, there was a complicated system of fake advertising agencies. I mean, they really did have business, but there were a couple of executives who knew what was what and received mail on everybody's behalf. There were some lawyers who really, oh gosh, it was really risky for those folks. I mean, they would have lost, um, I don't know if they would have lost their license to practice law, but certainly their law firms would have lost a ton of business. Um, so you had all these stops along the way and you had a gentleman in um, Hannah's sphere that I speak about a lot. I can't say enough good things about him, Al Rubin. And Albert Rubin was a young story editor who wound up becoming a courier of sorts, although I feel like that's not a a lofty enough title. But he, <laughs> besides being a story editor and a writer on some of the scripts, this gentleman traveled from Europe, from the writer's room in Europe to New York, and he delivered scripts and notes to writers in New York. And then he did the same thing in California and then back to that room in uh, in Surrey and outside of outside of London. And in between all those times, he was just a supremely gifted, fast writer. I mean, these McClellan, uh, sorry, Hunter and Lardner and all of Waldo Salt and um, gosh, um, Adrian Scott, all of those guys, wow, they really knew their stuff and they were fast, concise. They had to think tense. To, I mean, you can't write a script for television today without, you know, several weeks of breaking stories and then um, several rounds, you know, I, I'll leave that to the script writers to describe <laughs> that, but I know it's not easy. And so doing it from across the Atlantic through a typewriter and sometimes written letters on onion skin is just mind blowing. I mean, these oh. are whole, whole episodes, one after the other. And they're being watched by the government while they're doing this. They were being watched. Hannah was being watched. Uh, Walter Bernstein, who um, really was responsible for setting up, um, you know, Hannah did Colonel Mar Colonel March presents a series about um, the detective that for which she she used that original movie as her calling card but then she wound up making a series out of it a very successful series uh, so Walter Bernstein was really um, the and, and a Polanski Polanski and Bernstein uh, really set up that formula and and this is only 1953 1954 um they really i i don't know how they did it they, but they were being watched for sure um all all of them were being watched yeah. all of them their wives were being watched their children were being watched their mothers and fathers were being watched it's inc it, it's amazing i got to touch on some of her later films that star richard pryor Yes. Because, you know, Grease Lightning and Stir Crazy, which I think was one of her last two films, if I'm not, mis if I'm not mistaken. Yes, so, they were. How and did Claudine. she... Hmm? And, Claude, Claudine. and Claudine. 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 How did she meet... How did that come to be, Richard Pryor and her? 
Um, I think they met through, I know there was, uh, James Earl Jones was in that mix. Um, you know, somehow they met through somebody she worked with at third world films, which she, uh, set up. I don't go into a lot of detail about her later years. Um, I'll be candid. I, I didn't want to. Okay. Um, there, Fair there's enough. <laughs> a lot of ink spilled about that. And uh, because this is an unauthorized biography, I feel that, uh, you know, once you start getting into life rights, uh, I think her daughters can better speak to that. Um, but yeah, I think it's, I, I think they became acquainted through her work with third world, uh, third world cinema. Sorry, I have, okay. uh, yeah. Which in itself was just really, I mean, in the early 70s, the notion that you are going to try to bring more opportunity to people who have always been shut out of Hollywood is, mm -hmm. is I mean, she was, she was 30 years ahead of her time every step of the way, Amazing. every step of the way. Well, the book is Red Sapphire, The Woman Who Broke, I'm sorry, The Woman Who Beat the Blacklist. The author's name is Julia Bricklin. Julia, I want to thank you for being on Lights, Camera, Author thank tonight. Thank you so much. A pleasure.